All right, welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. You're listening to Black on the Air. Nice to have you guys here. Really, really interesting show today. Rebecca Traster is my guest. She's the author of the book Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. And uh, Rebecca's amazing. It's really a great book. And she's also a columnist at large for New York Magazine. And she's uh, probably on the forefront of this whole um, abortion issue right now, what's going on in the courts and these lawsuits. So we're going to talk about some of that and some of the issues in general and talk about her book. So I hope you enjoy it. It was a good conversation. Ah, guys, I don't have a lot to that I want to talk about today, but I did. Okay, I'm going to talk about sports a little bit, you know. So people that don't care about sports, I understand. But, you know, I love my Lakers, so I got to talk about them. But it'll just be for a second. But I am going to use it to make a larger point, so I do promise you that. So I got to talk about Magic Johnson. Okay, so here's the deal. Magic Johnson was the president of operations for the Lakers, and he abruptly quit like a few years ago. A few years ago. Seems like a few years ago. A few weeks ago. And it was very bizarre. It was almost like he was crying and wanted to take his ball home. It was really weird, right? And um, it was very cryptic and everything. And he did an interview on first take with Stephen A. Smith and the gang and ESPN. And he, well, he basically, by the way, when he first quit, he kind of threw the Lakers under the bus. And Magic has always said how much he loves the Lakers and everything. But he was kind of cryptic in why he left, and he didn't call LeBron. He didn't call Jeannie Buss, who's the owner of the Lakers. All this big mess, right? And by the way, all the people that hate the Lakers love this stuff. Like Bill Simmons, you know, you guys know who Bill Simmons is. (laughs) He loves this stuff. Can't get enough of it, you know. Even though his Celtics, you know, flamed out in the playoffs, so he's in a worse place than I am. But he loves this stuff. You know, for me, I kind of cautiously look at it as a Laker lover trying to— Hope that everything goes okay. But yesterday, I was very concerned about what Magic did. And I I promise you, I will make a larger point because of this. So Magic went on this show, and he basically said that he felt like he was betrayed by Rob Palenka, who works with him. Rob used to be a big sports agent, and now he's a GM of the Lakers, and he doesn't have a great reputation around town. And one of the issues that Magic said was he felt he was backstabbed by Rob Palenka, and the nature of the backstabbing is that as president of operations for the Lakers, Magic was really not around a lot. And he even said that he told Jeannie Buss that, look, you know, I got other businesses. I am Magic Johnson. I may not be around that much, you know. And he was true to his word, you know, apparently. Whether he told Jeannie that or not, I don't know. But as far as the story goes, he was true to his word. And it seems like Rob Palinka basically pointed that out to the staff and said, you know what, Magic's not really around that much. And then Magic heard about this. He got upset, felt he was backstabbed. I'm generalizing, of course, right? And he's made an issue of that. You know, he kind of quit in a huff. And some of the decision-making process, he didn't quite have the autonomy that he thought that he wanted, right? So Magic's on this show, and he's basically throwing the entire Laker team under the bus by— saying these things about Rob Palenka, which we kind of knew, but the way that he's saying it, it felt like he's kind of undermining it. He kind of undercuts Jeannie Buss by talking about her and what she needs to do better, but it's really kind of undermining her. And he's making the Lakers look even more fragile in this situation. But when he's saying all this, he's saying how much he loves the Lakers and that Jeannie is his sister and that he has no problem with Rob and all these things. And I'm looking at this going— What the fuck seriously is going on here? How can you really love a team and you're doing this to them? You're kind of, you're saying these things that's completely undermining them. And it made me think, um, 
just about the culture at large and how we communicate and the ways in which we communicate and what's important to people. And to me, here's my takeaway. I told you I was getting to a large point. From Magic's point of view, Magic was being honest about the situation. And by honest, what I mean is that he's being truthful to his point of view and he's expressing his feelings about something. And what he's telling us completely has to do with him. And he even reiterates that. He says, look, like LeBron was upset that Magic didn't call him, said he could have at least given me a heads up and said, yo, man, I don't want to work with you, (laughs) whatever, bye, you know, and he didn't even do that. And Magic's response to that was, well, look, I had to do what was right for me, you know. I can't do what's right for anybody else, and I had to do what makes me happy, you know. And so I'm listening to all this, and I'm realizing that all Magic's concerned about and the thing that people actually want to hear from him is his honest take on this, how he feels about it. And to me, that's different from him telling the truth about something. Here's the distinction I'm making. The difference between being honest about something and telling the truth about something. I don't think Magic told the truth about anything about that situation, very little bit about the truth, but he was very honest about it. And I think in today's society, we put a premium on honesty over truth-telling. The truth of the matter is, Magic really didn't dedicate himself to that job in the way that the Lakers needed him to. Rob Palinka said that, and Magic was upset that the truth was actually said. That's the heart of the matter, you guys. But in Magic's explaining this to us, he's focusing on himself. And even though he says he loves the Lakers, he's doing a disservice to the Lakers. And that's what I mean by this whole focus on this honesty as the premium that we should be interested in and not the truth of something. If Magic was really telling the truth about something, it would have protected this organization that he says he loves so much. But because he's more focused on honesty of his own feelings and his own take in it, he's undermining this institution that he says he loves. So how does this work in the bigger realm? I believe that in our society, we tend to apply honesty over truth-telling. I think many times we have attitudes about (laughs) truth-tellers. Sometimes we don't like truth-tellers. We get mad at truth-tellers. But we applaud honesty all the time. Oh, they were so honest. Oh, they're such toad their feelings, you know. And Trump, to me, is the nadir of this movement, let's say, you know, because Trump really is, and this is going to sound weird, he is an honest huckster. That's what Trump is. Trump is a completely honest huckster. He is completely honest in his desire to lie to you to achieve his goals. And because he's honest about that, he is applauded by his supporters and they continue to support him. Where the left makes the mistake is they focus on the truth. And Trump is not interested in the truth. He is not. He is only interested in his honest attempt to fuck with you all the time and to and to poke you and to provocate and to have this honest relationship. And by honest, he's focusing on his feelings about something. You're fake news. You're this and you're that. This is what he's getting rewarded on. And this is why his base will never leave him. And the way he's getting attacked is ineffective because the attack is on a different plank that he does not care about and his followers don't care about. They don't care about the truth. They don't care about this crusade to say how many times he lies. They don't give a fuck about him lying. His lying 
is honesty. I know this sounds weird. His lying in many ways represents him being honest. This is the paradox of paradoxes, you guys. And he is continually rewarded for that. So where are we? What are we going to do? This would be something interesting to look at in this coming election. Who are the people out there who are focusing on honesty? And who are the people out there who are focusing on truth-telling? And what are we going to pick? You know, are we going to pick that avatar of our feelings, you know, the person out there who's expressing what we're expressing? Or are we going to pick somebody who's telling the truth about something and who's giving us the medicine that we actually need and is going to do the things that we actually need to be done? Because that's, you know, as I say, that's keeping it 100% real. We'll see. I don't know. It's America. I don't put a lot of hope in it. <laughs> Sorry, guys. All right. That's all I got. We'll be back with Rebecca Traster and talk about these... Um, that she's going on right now in her book, Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Act. All right, welcome back. Very pleased to have a guest on the show today who's really written a very provocative book, Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. And uh, one of my favorite columnists, by the way, at the New York Magazine, columnist at large, as they say. Rebecca Traster, welcome to Black on the Air, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me. I say one of my favorite because your articles are always provocative, you know, the things that you write. <laughs> you know, there's never, you never get to rest when you're reading something that, 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 you've, that you've written. It keeps, it keeps me on my toes, at least, you know, so okay. I just want to give you that props for that you know thank you very much that's i feel like i never get to rest when i'm in my brain i, I can <laughs> so only i'm glad i'm having that effect on other yes. people too. i well that's probably a good thing i guess i can only yeah. imagine you know of course you have kids too and and that always does it also right or, yeah no you know. there's no rest anywhere in my exactly. life right now exactly i can completely relate to that but this has been really an extraordinary week in terms mm-hmm. of uh the fight on women's productive rights and all these things. And I just wanted to start off and just get some of your take on what's been what's been going on. What's mm. happening right now, Rebecca? Well, it's interesting. I'm sort of it's still in the midst of um, trying to figure out the place we are in the story. That, like, I feel like my job as a, as a journalist yeah. and even in my books is like trying to tell a story. I often am writing about this country. Obviously, there are right. bigger stories globally. But I'm often trying to tell a story about this country that doesn't mm-hmm. get told in a lot of other places. So I've been like wrestling with what this moment is because right. what happened is mostly last week, a, a spate of massive blanket bans on abortion yeah. swept through a series of states. Mm-hmm. They're all a little different from each other. They each have like different sort of punishing details in mm-hmm. them. You know, Georgia had sort of been one of the first um, that the had been signed bill, by the it, heartbeat right? bill. Mm-hmm. And it was signed by Brian Kemp, who, of course, essentially, you know, shouldn't be the governor as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> um, but that's another story. Right. And then You know, we went through Alabama and Missouri. And the thing that has happened, these bills are horrifying. Some of them, you know, they criminalize abortion. Mm -hmm. They do not make exceptions in some cases for the for rape and incest. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's kind of a false setup to them as well. Like once you're past six weeks or whatever, which is like. Right. Well, that's some of the idiocy that we've heard from the actual lawmakers who have been defending the bill and arguing for it on the floors of the state legislatures have included just the most bananas, like 
made up science fiction stuff about how pregnancy even works to begin with. So you had a guy Mm -hmm. in Alabama arguing that, of course, you're still going to be able to get all the services that are available now right up until you know you're pregnant. What? Which, of course, like bears no relationship to any reality that any human being has ever lived in, right? Like, get your abortion before you know you're pregnant because once you know you're pregnant, right? Right? So everybody quick sign up for their monthly abortion appointment, right? Oh, my God. Directly after intercourse. Wow. Oh, man. Yeah, no. So, um, and then, I mean, the, the, the... the levels, there's also, there was a bill slightly earlier than that mm-hmm. um, where one of the stipulations was that ectopic pregnancies, which, by the way, they're pregnancies that um, that happen in, often in the fallopian tubes so sure. they can also happen in other places outside of the uterus. They're extremely dangerous. Absolutely. Um, and, by you know, the way, women, most pregnancies are very dangerous, you know. Well, I mean, they're certainly more dangerous yeah. than abortions, right. by the way. The, you know, the healthcare abortion is a far safer procedure than mm-hmm. pregnancy is an experience, just medically speaking. But right. ectopic pregnancies are when uh, a fertilized egg implants somewhere other than the uterus. They're very dangerous. They can be deadly for women. Mm-hmm. And there's there's another law that stipulates, that included this thing, that ectopic pregnancies, since, since many of these laws, in fact, will criminalize abortion to the point where there will be questions about miscarriage or lost pregnancies. Um, You know, was this a criminal act? Which is so horrifying on so many levels in addition to to being absolutely ascientific. So one of these bills says you will remove the ectopic pregnancy, the implanted um, you know, embryo and replace it in the uterus. This is not medically possible. So these are the buffoons. These are the stupid, know-nothing people who are legislating and policing the bodies of people of, who are reproductive, who are uh, the, the reproductive capabilities of human beings in this country. And it is sickening. I would also say that one of the dynamics we're looking at right now Mm-hmm. without taking away one single element of the horror of these bands, is that in their horror, they have awoken a mass number of people to, to a campaign that has been ongoing for decades mm-hmm. and has, in fact, been very effective for decades and about which a lot of people have not been aware of or angry enough about. And that is one of the key elements that we need to think about. when we, And that is in no way, when I say this, I am in no way trying to shame anyone who sort of just become alert to this. Mm-hmm. I am in no way trying to be punishing. I am mostly what I am saying is when we think about um the, the level of shock that, that so many people feel reading about these bans, we have to also be very vocal about the fact that abortion has become all but inaccessible and basically all but illegal in many places in this country yeah. over a series of years. Basically, this campaign started as soon as Roe v. Wade was decided in 1973. And in fact, for years, something that I wrote about in, at New York Magazine those many people, many lifelong activists who preceded me and then many contemporary journalists and activists have been yelling about this for years and been told that we were being overdramatic, yeah. that this wasn't real, Roe was settled law, nothing was going to happen to it, abortion was always going to be available. And, of course, this was not lived reality you know, in Texas, which had to close so many of its clinics, it has not been lived reality for low-income women, uh, you know, and, and 
vast communities of women of color who have been basically prohibited from getting the abortion care that they need or mm -hmm. want by the Hyde Amendment, which was a legislative rider um, approved in 1976 that prevented any federal insurance federal money. Funds, right to paying for abortion. And it yeah. basically made abortion inaccessible to low-income people. Well, and the premise of the Hyde Amendment, I always disagreed with because the premise was that, well, we are, we don't all agree on this issue, so how can the government fund something that we have a disagreement <laughs> about, right? I mean, that's the, the premise of it, right? But right. we disagree about war, and nobody right. has a problem that's, with our tax dollars it, <laughs> supporting bombing, you know, bombing right. campaigns and things Precisely. like that. Precisely. There, there are many things we have disagreements about, but tax money funds it, you know. Right. Somehow Quakers' tax money, you know, conscientious objectors' tax money still funds a military-industrial complex. Yes, but so, let's punish right. poor women, you know, in this fight. Do you know, since you, a lot of your focus— is on the power of anger, you mm -hmm. know, in women and that. And even the title of your article, Our Fury Over Abortion, was dismissed for decades as hysterical, which, as I was saying earlier, is a very provocative title. But what about the opposite of that? Do you think the pro-life movement, uh, that the anger out of that was had validation to it? Uh, well, uh, my argument— Like, in, in other words, it was validated in society in a way that the pro-choice anger wasn't. Absolutely. Well— mm -hmm. There are a couple things. Um, so anger, my argument is that anger is politically potent. Um, yes. And it, that works in a lot of directions. It's not all progressive anger that's politically that, potent. That is right? correct. And in that's fact, what I you mean, can, yeah. Right. And my book is largely about an ignored history of mm -hmm. progressive anger, often coming from people who have been at the margins of power, whether that's women, people of color, women of color especially, whose anger and the mm -hmm. engagement that that anger has led them to has been often nation-shaping in ways that we haven't been taught to value or even understand, right? Yeah. We just haven't been told that version of the story. However, the anger that is deployed on behalf of a power structure— on behalf of of um, you know the power, however you conceive of that, like mm -hmm. um, white patriarchal power, you know capitalist power, that kind of anger is also extremely powerful. And women, very often white women, giving voice to anger on behalf of what I think and you know we would think of now as conservative power structures. Mm -hmm. You know, so that's like Sarah Palin, right? Sarah Palin was publicly angry in a yeah. way that was sort of um, popularly appreciated, like wow, Mama Grizzlies and Pitbull hockey moms, right? She offered a vision of female ferocity that was almost kind of fetishized. Why? Because it wasn't it wasn't a ferocity that was trying to tear apart the people who have a kind of oppressive power it was on behalf of that oppressive power. Mm -hmm. And so the power itself could celebrate that anger. The same has been true with the history of a lot of conservative women. And of course there are a lot of women, women who have been angry about abortion and who have been angry on the anti-abortion side mm -hmm. and their anger has also been very potent um and and in fact it, it's not I, I don't want to make it sound like it's entirely women who are because there are a lot of men on the anti-abortion that some of the the most vocal anti-abortion activists and leaders and certainly a lot of the lawmakers who are 
making this these laws and signing them um, have been men. Certainly the mm-hmm. people who voted for the Hyde Amendment, the people in the state legislatures, a lot of them are men, although some women, a woman wrote the Alabama bill and a woman governor in Alabama signed it. So right. it's both men and women. But obviously their anger has been extremely potent in motivating a pro-life movement. And what is mm-hmm. dangerous if you are engaged politically, and this is part of my argument, is not being angry, is feeling complacent, is feeling mm-hmm. like there's nothing to be angry about. And that is the idea that there's nothing to be validly angry about is something that is regularly sold mm-hmm. to us in the United States. And you kind of lay some blame at the hands of, you know, many on the left, too, at least in the political realm, for maybe being too complacent when it comes to the pro-choice um, position or that or that position or giving maybe too much to the other side in terms of even attitude or whatever. I, I know you mentioned Joe Biden and some other people. Um do you think they took it for granted that, huh. uh, you know, the issues around Roe v. Wade and, and with some of the on the ground? I think a lot of people take for granted, as you just pointed out, the on the ground issues, I'll call them. You know, the actual access to health care mm-hmm. and, and services for women, and especially in some of these remote areas. You know. Yeah, well, and it's important that a lot of the people who have power, whether you're talking about the actual elected officials, Mm -hmm. um, the people who are being approached as voters or as activists, are often people for whom access has not been interfered with, right? Mm -hmm. It's not – when you're talking about the people who are the lawmakers, you're not talking about low-income communities of color, right? right? So there is this sense, what I – you know, there's a board – there's Five Planned Parenthood <laughs> clinics right. right around my, you know. On my way to work. Uh, right. <laughs> um, so there's not that. And that is, that is by the way, one of the tricks is is for those who have access to certain kinds of power, economic power, social power, uh-huh. you, they can buy that lie that there's nothing really to be angry about. As far as the Democrats who have disappointed me for all of my lived memory, right? So I remember I grew uh-huh. up in Pennsylvania, which was governed when I was a kid by a Democratic governor named Bob Casey, who was virulently uh-huh. anti-abortion. And he was one of a number of Democrats who, you know, in the 1970s, after the Roe v. Wade decision, and in fact, in the wake of a lot of the um, partisan realignment after the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the gay rights movement, that left Democrats representing these kind of formerly marginalized groups who now had new kinds of rights and protections, and Democrats were their party, Um but the Democratic Party felt very uncomfortable with that. It didn't want to be the feminized party. It didn't want to be the mommy party. It was still obviously the led primarily. <laughs> well, that's what they were called. Really, uh-huh. if you go back, there was this fear that they were going to be called the mommy party wow. because they, they, you know, so there was a kind of retreat and mm-hmm. to safe sort of white guys who looked like the past, right? And there's and and it wasn't that far to travel because of course so much of, you know, federal legislature and and state legislatures are still predominantly run by by white men, but there was a group of very moderate lawmakers, Democratic lawmakers, who not only did not fight vociferously on behalf of the continued protection of these rights that had just been won, Mm -hmm. but, you know, Joe Biden voted for the Hyde Amendment that, again, denied abortion access to to low-income women. And, And he was not alone. You know, the Casey's, Bob Casey, the my governor from when I was a kid in Pennsylvania who was super anti-abortion, his son, Bob Casey Jr., is still to, he's the, the senior senator, senator from Pennsylvania. And he's supposedly gotten better on abortion, but just last year he voted for a 20-week ban. Um, so this is, the Democratic Party has not until, you know, more recently— 
When this is the first Congress that actually has a Democratic pro-choice, mm-hmm. to use that language, a Democratic majority that is on the side of reproductive rights and justice. This is the first time this Congress. So it's been a long road away from that yeah. sort of middle of the road, squeamish on abortion. There was this sense, it wasn't even just in the 70s and 80s, it was Rahm Emanuel in, in 2006 who argued that we should be, you know, have a big tent and we've got a, the issue we've got to, as Democrats, if we want to get a majority, we need to be able to elect anti-abortion Democrats because that'll get us a majority. It's always that thing that we have to be willing to compromise on. It's always, it's always, they're not like, let's just elect some Democrats who don't believe in free speech, right? Right. Like we just got to make an exception. Um, And, you know, and it's what Tom Perez and Bernie Sanders, both, and Nancy Pelosi, pretty much every Democrat you can name, major leading Democrat, or in Bernie Sanders' case, an independent, has at one point made the argument that we should open, make a bigger tent, right? But that bigger tent is only open for anti-abortion politicians. And what it leaves you with is a Democratic Party that hasn't been willing to vociferously defend these rights and this Uh access. What do you think about—do you think the language around this needs um, (laughs) maybe some— boosting, let's say, or yes. because the you talk about language, you know, the way that you use words, as I say, is very powerful, too. And I feel like the right has had better messaging that's oh. more. And by better, I mean, it strikes to the heart in an emotional way that is very relatable. You know, um, when I say relatable, I always think about lay people who don't follow politics in the way that people who are political do. You know, mm-hmm. your average person going to work, trying to feed their family, and they just see the headline on things, you know. And when you see headline, kill baby, I mean, it's like, right. what, how are you going right. to argue against right. that, right? <laughs> right. Well, this is the—so immediately after Roe, what the what a conservative movement—and, of course, these are the years building up to Reagan— uh-huh. And the sort of unification of economically conservative politics mm-hmm. with religious, with the moral majority. Moral majority, and, yes, was around that time. Right. Mm-hmm. So, um, and immediately after Roe, what anti-abortion forces do is sort of quickly like hoover up all the language of morality, life, mm-hmm. family, and deploy it on behalf of an anti-abortion movement. They apply it to the fetus, to this concept of a future person. Right. Mm-hmm. And it is the lo- the logical fallacies are so vast because this is also a party that at that point is cutting back precisely the kinds of social safety networks that could actually provide future these future people, these lives that they're so invested in mm-hmm. with safe communities, um, you know, stable economic lives, good schools. Right. Every sort of part, every other policy that this right wing is invested in is being sucked away at the very same time that they're placing all of the morality and all of the language around life in this unborn person. Right? right, and then once the person is born, who cares if they're if the you know there's affordable housing or or you know good education or social safety nets that will keep their families you know economically stable? All that is being obliterated. Okay, yes, their their ability to be hypocritical in that matter has always been fa- amazing, yeah. uh, shocking. Yes. It just doesn't make any sense. At the same time, those Democrats who, as I said, were feeling very sort of squicked out by the idea that they're gonna they they're now in a place where they have to bare their teeth and and 
dramatically and powerfully engage on the side of reproductive rights Mm -hmm. and justice, all of these other policies they need to be on on the other side of, arguing for bigger safety nets, arguing for, you know, better housing policy, arguing for things like paid leave and uh, subsidized daycare, all this stuff that Democrats have been far too hesitant about really fighting for over these decades. They also— fundamentally, in their anxiety about being the mommy party or a feminized party, don't fight for the morality that you could just as easily have applied the language of life, morality, family, love, health to the to the reproductive rights and justice crusade. Mm-hmm. And we should have. And that's, I mean, that's Democrats. It's also a movement that did coalesce sort of around this choice framework. And, um, you know, I've never liked the word choice at all with uh-huh. regard to abortion. I, you know, I use it here and there and I understand what it's getting to. But but the movement, what's called the reproductive justice movement, which was founded and is led by women of color, pointing out that choice isn't even a concept mm-hmm. that applies for so many to so many people's lives because women of color have faced so many other obstacles that the notion that choice all comes down to a question of abortion doesn't even figure. It's like choice to have a child to begin with, choice to have the kind of access to health care, to gynecological and obstetric health care that makes having a child possible, to not being sterilized against, against your will, which of course has happened to communities of color and poor women throughout this country's history, um, to have safe schools and safe neighborhoods and affordable housing and affordable food and and the kinds of economic support to be able to make any kind of choice about whether or not and under what circumstances and when to make and raise a family. And so the reproductive justice movement has been incredibly powerfully useful on bringing these ideas together. And I think that the language of choice um, has been a little bit flaccid and hasn't really, um, I mean, it's, it's enough that, you know, many years ago, Sex in the City mocked it as a sort of form of <laughs> feminism, right? I choose my choice, right? That any it <laughs> permitted this <laughs> it permitted this illusion that any choice any woman right. makes is inherently feminist, and that's not true. I'm choosing ice cream, right? <laughs> yeah, I've always felt you know um, the positions on abortion are actually the reverse of what people think they are in terms of their um, philosophical standpoint. In other words, um, the let's call it the life and choice movements for mm. for lack of better mm-hmm. words right now. Sure. But the life movement to me is actually a liberal position and the choice movement is actually a conservative position, you know, which is the irony of ironies. Because on the left, they are calling for the liberty of the woman to be the foremost concern, you know, that that is the foremost concern here. You right. Know, when you think about her choice, it's her liberty that we should be most concerned right. about here. And her humanity. And her humanity. And right. that's a conservative notion to to ask the government to stay out of something and to be mm-hmm. more concerned with the liberty of an individual. You know, it's, a, it's one of those classic American rights, right? Whereas the right which I don't even think they realize this, are saying the government needs to intervene to protect, you know, this being that otherwise does not have a protection. That's a very progressive liberal statement. Right. You know? Right. <laughs> you know? Which is so it's interesting how the roles are reversed in the abortion uh, fight, but people act like they're they're not as, I- in other words, I'm saying they're not really ideological as they're made out to be. They're um, They're more positional, I guess. 
You know? Well, here, here's, I think that that's such, I actually. I don't know if that's a valid. Uh, no, it's totally valid. Bit. And I've actually never heard it sort of argued that way. And what mm-hmm. you're pointing to is the total fallacy that a, that yes. a ideology that fundamentally believes that in smaller government and getting that's government exactly out of right. personal choices would then get into one's Correct. womb, right? Okay, right. so that's It does a not line up makes, with what you're saying is your ideology when you say, I'm a conservative, so I'm pro-life. Actually, that's a progressive position. Exactly. <laughs> it's not and, true. <laughs> and there's just this chasm of logic, but that's also the same thing we were talking about earlier with, wait a minute, wait, we so value this baby, this, you know, this pre-baby, right? This fetus, the embryo. Um, we so value the morality and sanctity of this thing's life. And yet, as soon as it's bo- born, we, th- as a as an ideology and a sort of conservative movement and a political party, we are actually going to fight against it getting health care as soon as it's out of the womb. <laughs> that is, which truly Republicans Come on out and fight, you coward. Chip, Come on right. Out. <laughs> Get out of that womb and fight. What's wrong with you? <laughs> right. We, so there's a huge fallacy there. But when you keep stumbling upon these huge, like, gaps in logic, you what we probably get to is that maybe it's not really about what they say it's about mm-hmm. to begin with. And maybe it's about the desire to control bodies, to control mm-hmm. women, to control reproduction, and to do a lot of this along racial lines, because mm-hmm. a lot of controlling women's bodies and controlling reproduction is also about controlling racial identity, fear of, of, um, fear of, of increased power of women, fear of increased, um, you know, lack of racial clarity and increased power of people who are not white. All of these things are so tied up together. And and that's the sort of coherent explanation that <laughs> of what, what this kind of fight is about. Mm-hmm. It's about people who want to control women and by controlling women and people with uteruses, control reproduction, race, identity and power in this country. That's what makes sense. Do you think they're going to, uh, I know there's, uh, I was talking about this in my pod last week about the definition of a person and what that actually means and how, you know, when the right was fighting against gay marriage, they used the argument that, well, for thousands of years, marriage has been defined as between man and a woman. Why would we want to change that now to thousands of years? And so I make the argument that, well, for thousands of years, we defined a person from birth to death, from first breath to last breath. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't celebrate your conception day. You celebrate your birthday. You know, it's when you were born. You know, mm-hmm. with the possible exception of the Virgin Mary. <laughs> <laughs> right. I'm a Catholic, so the Immaculate right. Conception, whatever whatever that was, Wait, you that know, was weird. Yeah. celebrated. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm not a Catholic, and I've always been rather <laughs> yeah. confused by it's what went on. It's one of those on, bizarre but, yeah. things, Rick. I cannot explain <laughs> uh, a religion that's based on cannibalism every Sunday. Oh, I can't yeah. explain, you know. But— uh, but to me, it's like it's the same argument. That That's how we've defined a person from birth mm-hmm. to death for a thousand years. Why would we change that definition? Like a, a person is not a citizen when they're conceived in the United States. They're a citizen when they're born. But it seems like there is a movement to make um, the unborn or, you know, fetuses persons with rights as citizens. Do you think mm-hmm. that is a movement that is going to is going to is actually going to manifest. 
Well, that is, see, I would put that in the category of the kind of attempts to make coherent an argument fundamentally just to control women's bodies. Because exactly. it's not— it, it, but, it, To take <laughs> away the right from the woman by saying this uh, being inside of you actually has equal rights to you at this point, and you right. have no right over it. Right. And so the questions, I mean, do you want to go to those lawmakers who are passing these personhood amendments and say, so child support should count, should start immediately, right? Like, if this is a person and this is a child, you're going to want, you're going to, you're going to want those fathers to be compelled to start paying child support from the time the, the woman is four weeks pregnant, right? Is that, that right? Because it's a child. So therefore the, right? You know, and I don't think you're going to find a lot of support for that. The, all the sort of, Or you anchor know, conceptions, you know. Uh, exactly. Sorry. My sure. baby was conceived in the United States as an American right. citizen. Sorry. Precisely. <laughs> you are not, the, the, the interest in these, um, these unborn babies as people and fetuses as people as persons extends only so far as it is useful for that argument to undergird a move to control reproduction, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? It does not As extend to beyond really caring that. About, about no, no, nobody's them. considering right. the like microscopic set of cells of a six week pregnancy a person. That is not, that's, I just, I mean, that's not. Real that that's not a well, logical a with, argument. A person with rights, and I mean the other side of it. You know, every miscarriage is one of those things that is more common than people realize. And huge. When I was married, my wife and I, you know, we went through one, and it's very an emotional thing. And you, you do feel a loss of, you know, a, uh, this thing that would have been your child. You know, mm-hmm. but it is different from. Losing a child, you know, that has been born, it is different, you know. It is it's it is very emotional and no one wants to go through that. But it's just different. And to act like it's the same, is, I don't think it's just being honest, you know. But it's not to—I don't want to diminish the the pain that people go through through miscarriage and those sorts of things, you know, because it is, it is important. You know, they do feel like they lost their baby, absolutely. And I get that, you know. But um, I think we can be adult enough to make those distinctions, you know. Absolutely. And the lawmakers who are diminishing that pain are the ones who are saying that miscarriages are now going to be investigated. I mean, part of these bills means that— That's increasing the pain, yes. (laughs) Right? And in fact, it's increasing—here's the difference, is that the moral and emotional human beings in each of these individual stories and each of these hundreds of millions of stories Mm -hmm. of conception, of reproduction, of loss, of of termination, of birth, right? All the many different ways that it goes for so many different people. The moral centers of the stories could be the adult humans who have, who are, who are, who have investments, feelings, needs, desires about, about, their reproduction, about mm-hmm. whether or not or when or under what circumstances they want to make families or expand families, right? They could be the people we are morally worried about. And that extends to how they feel about the pregnancies that they are carrying. Mm-hmm. So for a wanted pregnancy, those people who are the full people are imagining a future life because they yes. want that to become a baby. That's right. Right? That is different. Those Another person who— is carrying a pregnancy 
for very good reason, including, you know, two-thirds of, of people who seek abortions are mm. already parents, which is something that an mm. anti-abortion move, movement consistently fails to recognize mm-hmm. that these are not people who need to be introduced to what it is like to be a parent, <laughs> yes, right? right? It's yes. like many of them are actually <laughs> seeking to, they don't want a pregnancy to continue yeah. because they want to be able to afford to give the children that they have mm-hmm. a kind of life that, you know, food on the table and and rent and places to sleep and, you know, and to yes, take care of the children they sober. have. They're making they're a very being sober decision. Sober, yes. mm-hmm. moral, and emotional and familial about life and taking care of children, right? That's that's the story for any number of people who seek abortions. And in those cases, seeking to end a pregnancy, that's a very different set of metrics because the reality of what's happening is depends in part on the moral actors who are the the human beings who are doing the work of the labor of reproduction. Right. And so, you know— But again, I would say that every one of these sort of arguments around personhood, around the value of a fetus, around what they all trip up on some logical fallacy. Mm -hmm. And it is because I believe that in many ways and what the policies are about are about controlling Mm -hmm. um, the bodies of those who can have babies and and that 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 is what it is about. Do you Full think um, – it feels like these laws that are happening all at the same time to me feel like there's collusion going on with this. And, mm. that, and in fact, in Alabama, they actually admitted that this is a direct shot at overturning yes. Roe v. Wade. Um, like they want this to be challenged, which to me is the most cynical way to pass something. So you're going to use poor women as pawns in your fight to overturn this, you know, to overturn this to screw right. poor women. Like you can try, you're doing it on both ends here. But uh, do you think that Roe v. Wade could actually be overturned? Do you think this is going to happen? Because there's a, you know, it feels very tenuous to me in terms of what the next few years could look like. Well, I'm going to say something that at first is going to sound insanely callous, and I hope you understand that I don't exactly mean it the way it sounds. Oh, that's okay. <laughs> Wait, this is a podcast. You can have time to explain callousness the way if Great. you want. Great. Or not. Okay. It doesn't matter. I don't care. Uh, the thing you can be the, good the, and mad, by the way. Good and mad. <laughs> Thank you. This statement I'm going to start with is that to some extent, it doesn't matter whether they overturn Roe v. Wade. Uh-huh. This is what an anti-abortion movement has been working toward for decades, and they were going along another path, and it was mm-hmm. having a massive effect. The, that path was what you often hear called chipping away. Okay. And I use that language too, but in fact, I've come to be—I've I've started thinking about how that chipping away is almost a way of minimizing it. Like, oh, there's just a little chip, right? When in fact, those chips, which are these state laws that haven't been bans, like the ones in the past couple of weeks, but have been restrictions, added burdens. So, for example, waiting periods—you know, you have to—you have to get the information. Much of it in states has been legislated that doctors have to give you fundamentally false information. This is really true. There mm-hmm. are states where laws have been passed in in recent decades where People are responsible for telling you medical facts that are not true, like that there's an association between breast cancer and abortion, right? But, you know, there, there are places where people are actually – it's legislated mm. that, that doctors have to give you false information about, you know, the lasting traumatic effects of abortion. And then in many places there are waiting periods where you have to wait and come back for – you get your information – 
some of it in some places, which may be false, and then are supposed to wait and consider it and then come back the next day. Well, think of the economic burden that that is for a person, often again, a person who already has children, perhaps a person who has traveled a long distance because so many clinics have closed because another form of chipping away has been making, you know, your hallways have to be X number of feet wide and like paved with gold in order to qualify as a, as a, right? And that causes the closing of many clinics, which means that there aren't providers and you have to travel 100 miles, 200 miles, 300 miles to get to a clinic. So imagine the costs if you're a person who does, how many, it's not even just low income women, how many middle income people could immediately lay their hands on the money that it would cost to travel a couple of hundred miles, stay a couple days, pay for a procedure, pay for childcare, arrange the logistics of this, right? This is not, this isn't some, it has become inaccessible to so many people. And so that was- It feels like it's designed to shame women. It's the the literal walk of shame. Absolutely. And this is- economically impossible and you save money and you save money to work to be able to pay for this and then it pushes you later and later gestationally so then you hit another set of roadblocks which is yeah. uh-oh I'm past 6 weeks 8 weeks 12 weeks 20 weeks that's one of the reasons that you even have a call for some later abortions is mm-hmm. because the restrictions have made it so difficult for women to save the money and people who who need abortions to save the money that they need to pay for it that that it pushes them later into pregnancy. So all of that, that has been building. And those laws have also, they've been waiting till they had a secure Supreme Court and waiting to push these chipping away laws, which in fact are not minimal. They're, they have a huge impact on communities and entire right. states and regions of the country. And that was the idea strategically that they were going to do. They'd get a Supreme Court, a conservative Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. They'd eventually push these cases up. The Supreme Court, that conservative Supreme Court, seeking to make abortion fundamentally unavailable, if technically legal under Roe, right. would uphold— It's just going to be impossible for you to get right. one. But we're right. not saying it's illegal. Right. right. They'll say it's right. not an undue burden, which is now the standard that it has to meet under right. Casey, well, a law right. called Casey, which was came after Roe. So that was one strategy. Now it seems that some in the anti-abortion movement are so bullish on the idea that a Republican Party and the current president, who has had the power to appoint two justices already and— and build out a massively conservative federal judiciary beyond the Supreme Court. Suddenly, they're taking this bigger and what they thought they were not going to do, which is go straight for Roe and just overturn the fucker, right? And <laughs> and now that's what the Alabama, what these big bands are doing. But yeah. I have to say, and I don't know which one. I've heard opinions on both sides. Will they? Will the Supreme Court take one of these ban cases? Will they just continue to do the the chipping away cases? But what I have to say, and this is really important, okay. either way. It has the same effect. It keeps people from getting the health care they have a right to. Okay. Oh, so we covered a lot of this on my old show, The Nightly Show, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, it was an issue, especially the inaccessibility and the, the burgeoning inaccessibility of facilities for women. And, you know, with people, I just, I was always shocked at how just cold people were with denying women just the basics of um, reproductive health care. It's just ridiculous, you know. Mm-hmm. So your book, Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger, what was your biggest takeaway in researching your book about anger and women? 
Uh, it was how little we've been taught mm-hmm. about women's anger. You know, we are taught in this country. We're taught about the political power of anger all the time. We're taught about mm-hmm. anger as our founding narrative, right? The the mm-hmm. founding fathers, right? You right. know, give me liberty or give me death. And they like, you know, broke a bell and they poured tea into That's a right. harbor. They were super angry. And that is, in fact, supposed to be our lullaby, right? Like mm-hmm. this is, we were born in righteous anger. Well, okay, right. So then those founding fathers who are still cited I mean, just by every politician worth their salt, theirs is the vision for a democracy. Well, what did that nation that they built got built on, A, the genocide of a Native population, the enslavement of African Americans, the lack of enfranchisement and uh, basic rights for women. And so they went about all the things that they were furious about, being policed and taxed without government representation. They recodified in our founding documents, right? Now, ever since— so I've always been taught about the founders' anger as the mm-hmm. thing that we are we sing songs about, right? It, yes, the righteous <laughs> anger, as you say. Mm-hmm. Right. But when I went back and started to look at the history through this lens where instead of trying to look away from women's anger because we're always told it's unpleasant and shrill and whiny <laughs> and it's not useful and it's going to undermine our message. And right. so like Why everybody— Why angry? Come <laughs> yeah. Down. Maybe if you said it more rationally, someone would listen to you, right? And, you know, you're— and, I'll just and I, smile. <laughs> I absorbed all that. Look, I'm a feminist journalist and I write about yeah. gendered and racial and economic inequality. I've been pissed my whole life and yet I have yeah. really in my work also taken care to be like funny and approachable sure. because if I were too angry nobody would listen to me so well believe me you're talking to a black person where <laughs> black anger has always yes. been something that America's had a problem with you know for a lot of the same reasons I mean and mm-hmm. and the, and shared reasons because of course black women's anger is at the heart of this story yeah. and in writing the book it was like wait a minute, I'm just going to look straight at this thing instead of trying to look around it or away from it. And the thing that I found was that women's anger from the period, the same period of the founding, and there are two steps when you, first is to find the people you haven't been taught about. So I don't know. When you talk about this, you're talking about women's anger specifically in relationship to this country because we can go back even further. Oh, Right. I mean, if we want to talk about women's anger, right? But but you're you're doing it in the context of this country, especially when you talk about the revolutionary power, right? Yes, of this yes, country and its politics. There could have got been it. a much bigger book that was like yes, the global yes. history of yes, women's anger. Yes, we all anger. know that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but this is focused. But mm-hmm. you know, so women were angry at the same period of the founding about mm-hmm. the same inequalities as they were being applied to themselves. And there's there's a woman named Mumbet in Massachusetts. She's an enslaved woman who would na- later be known as Elizabeth Freeman. And she worked mm-hmm. in the home of one of these revolutionary politicians. And she heard his language of uh, about liberty and equality and oppression, and she applied it to her own situation as a very badly physically abused enslaved woman um, right. in a Massachusetts home. And she petitioned for her freedom, and she won. I was never taught the story of Mumbet. And what's mind-blowing is whenever in my in my education I have been taught about, like, sort of the history of marginalized people, it's like, well, it doesn't get taught in the history books because it was just in the domestic space and it didn't—it's not the laws. Okay, that's bullshit because Mumbet's petition was one of three that became the basis for the abolition of slavery in the state of Massachusetts in 1783. So mm-hmm. you can't even pretend that this was just some random story that nobody knew about. No, one of the first states— outlawed slavery 
in part because of the case of this woman who was operating with the same political anger, in fact, shared rhetoric as a white revolutionary mm-hmm. politician. And was and was Mumbets, was her expression done with angry epithet in the same way? Or was or did she just take the you know, maybe the style or the cause itself and presented it in, you know, let's say a more palatable way for for, for the people at the time. Well, it was a lawsuit, right? Okay. So and so it was it was a legal petition, right? And there's okay. not enough of the story retained. So a lot of this is because these stories haven't been valued. Some of the story is lost, right? It's lost. Right, right. And and you know, there's actually a sort of complicated and ironic um she the the lawyer who argued her case mm-hmm. um she went to work for after she won her freedom she went to work for his family now mm-hmm. his family is a white family in Massachusetts his family employed her after she was free and she's buried in their plot you can visit her grave but oh, wow. one of the reasons that her story actually gets told which is a real story about race and power is that the daughter in the family is a woman named Catherine Mariah Sedgwick actually becomes an early and rare published female writer hmm. in the early United States and she tells the story of Mumbet that's one of the ways that the story is preserved but we don't have all the details the person who we do have the details on of the same era is Abigail Adams, Absolutely. who is John yeah. Adams' wife. And I was yes. taught about Abigail Adams. And this is the yes. second step. And where it's like, even when you are taught about the women, are you taught about their anger? No, yeah. you're not. When I was taught about Abigail Adams, and I think pretty much everybody who's ever heard, here's yeah. one line. Remember don't, the ladies, don't, John. Don't forget the ladies, yes. Which is like, oh my God, what a dismal request. Like, just yeah. remember we exist. But, <laughs> but if you read the same letter in which she says that, she also writes, remember, John, All men would be tyrants if they could, using the language of tyranny that John Adams, her husband and the future president, has, you know, this is the language of revolution against King George, the tyrant. Abigail Adams arguably was John Adams' equal, you know, in many ways. I mean, she absolutely was concerned with tyranny, and she had seen what her husband, by the way, had gone through uh, by defending— you know, yes. those uh, soldiers that he had to defend, too. You know, she was no shrinking violet, you know, in terms of that, as right. they say, you know. And she also mm-hmm. sa- she says in that same letter, if you don't include women in your, fa- in your the founding and in the vision for this nation, we're determined to foment a rebellion. So she's right. using the language of revolution. But it yeah. is so crucial that in that document that historians have had, it has not been lost. It's not like somebody didn't know about it. We are never taught about the anger of the assertion that all men would be tyrants if they could and that women are determined to foment a rebellion. And you think about that the way we've been taught all of our history. You think about Rosa Parks. Mm-hmm. And how for years Rosa Parks was taught, the story of Rosa Parks was like a tired seamstress, yes. right? And there was a kind of nobility in, and, and in fact, this mm-hmm. is the way so much of the civil rights movement got framed. Of course, it was a consciously nonviolent movement, but that right. the nonviolence is the part that really gets transmitted, especially as a, as a young white middle class well, woman growing up in the United States. The, the people who needed to be nonviolent were the white people. Let's right. be clear about that. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah. um, 
But Rosa Parks's the sort of politicization, intentionality, and the rage that motivated her lifetime of activism and a lifetime. And she writes and talks about the fury that motivated her from the time that she was a child, fury at racial inequality. She worked as an mm. investigator for the NAACP investigating the gang rapes of black women by white men in the Jim Crow South. She, she kept that seat on that bus in 1955 as a political conscious act intended to start a movement and or to, to be catalytic within a movement and yet all of the anger in the retelling of the history of Rosa Parks gets just seeped away and so that's part of what this book is about and part of what the process of thinking about politics and social change in this country is about where has there been anger women's anger and the anger of marginalized people it's very often women of color who have been catalytic here who have been angry and their anger has started what became movements that changed laws, that changed the Constitution, that changed the power structures in the United States. And yet we have never been encouraged to see or value their anger as politically potent in the way that we are still told to value the anger of white guys in diners. Read any political yeah. coverage today and you will see a kind of anger valorized. And it is the anger of a diner guy. And in fact, your book opens with that powerful image of the 72 convention in Miami with angry women being just blatantly ignored by the journalists, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Which is very fascinating. You go back to that time and just how Shirley Chisholm even was so ignored, you know. Abs Nobody uh, wants to look at I mean, at mm. the beginning of the beginning of the Kavanaugh hearings before he's accused of assault by Christine Blasey Ford. Mm -hmm. There were protesters in the chamber the first day standing and shouting. In fact, many of them shouting about abortion, right? Because they know what's yeah. about to go down. And there's exactly. one woman who's shouting about health care and, and the repeal of Obamacare. And she shouts, without Obamacare, I will die. And oh. Orrin Hatch, the Republican senator who is had been on that committee long enough that he was also on the committee for Anita Hill's testimony, says to this protester, or says about her, get this loudmouth out of here. We shouldn't wow. have to deal with this. The idea, there is an investment in shutting up, not listening to, and ignoring the voices of, of women who are angry about inequality and injustice because there is a knowledge that that anger can start movements. That is why it's not an accident that we're not encouraged mm -hmm. to listen to the anger. You talk about black anger. We talk about female anger. The anger of those who have been kept on the margins for so long. There is a strategic reason why we are taught to fear or be suspicious of or laugh at that anger and not take it seriously. It's because the people who have power know that in fact that anger of those on the margins who are righteously angry that anger has the power to catalyze the very movements that have changed who has power in this country. That is, it's it's the abolition movement. It is the suffrage movement. It is the civil rights movement. It is the labor movement. They start with anger and very often the anger of women. Yeah, from Dolores Huerta all the way down. It's interesting because in the political context, you know, that's, that seems to have a, a direct correlation to want to shut something down so you don't have progress or whatever that is. But why do you think just men in general are afraid of angry women? Because I think the word afraid is the proper word, but maybe there's a better word there. But but it seems that seems to be the thread in a lot of this, too, that there's an actual fear of angry women. 
Do you think that's fair or no? Oh, oh totally. I mean, yeah. in fact, one of the things I write about that does precede, you know, the sort of revolution is this device. I, I write in the mm-hmm. book about this device in medieval Europe that was called the brank. It's horrible, actually. I don't know why I'm sort of like smiling as I talk about it. It's totally not funny. Um, uh, it's a it's an iron. We have one right here in the studio, actually. Yeah. <laughs> um, it's an iron muzzle. And yeah. it's often called the scold's bridle. And it was to be put on the mouth to literally muzzle and shut the mouth of a scolding or querulous, i.e. an angry wife or woman, to shut the mouth. And they had like metal tongue depressors and spikes so that if a woman did talk, like her tongue would be pierced by a metal spike. They're horrible. But but that is, I mean, that's not exactly about a political context. That is any right. woman who is challenging male authority is a problem and needs to be muzzled. But I think it's not unrelated to the broader political answer I just gave, which is that Mm -hmm. a woman who's challenging, you know, patriarchy exists not just in our governmental institutions, but in our homes, in our relationships, in our families, who enjoys all kinds of economic, domestic, sexual, social power. And, you know, in this country and many places around the world, it's men who've enjoyed the greater share of that. Women Mm -hmm. who challenge those men in both political and personal contexts. And, of course, there's a reason that within a women's movement, there is a phrase, which is the personal is political. Women who challenge men in any of those contexts are problematic because they are disrupting who gets to have power and who gets to enjoy it unchallenged. Can a woman who leads with anger, can that woman be president of the United States? Sure. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not going to be easy. <laughs> I think. <laughs> but because but I, we know that mm-hmm. men get applauded for leading with anger oh, yeah. in leadership roles, you know. So here's the thing, when I say sure, um, that made it sound way too easy. <laughs> sure, yeah, what? We've elected tons right. of women president. What's the problem? <laughs> um, you know, we can look directly at 2016 when Hillary Clinton mm-hmm. ran against two men of very opposite sides of the political spectrum, both of whom mm-hmm. deployed anger very effectively and were congratulated right, rightfully on their— mm-hmm. uh, Yeah, from different mm-hmm. ideological viewpoints. But they were credited correctly mm-hmm. for channeling the anger— of their supporters. And Hillary Clinton was also fairly criticized for not bringing the passion and not mm. actually being able to sort of that horrible word that people use, like authentically uh, channel anger of, you know, an electorate. However, every time Hillary Clinton, and you can, I mean, I have examples of this in the book, but like you can, it's not hard to find and probably not hard for a lot of people to remember. Every time the woman spoke too close to a microphone, some like, serious pundit would say like stop yelling you're screaming at me (laughs) so (laughs) and she herself wrote about how she had to like get a vocal coach because they're like don't scream because people are not gonna they don't like a yelling Uh, woman right morning joe's head would explode all the time it's like stop it you guys just stop it right Mm. and so clinton was a really powerful example of that double bind like wait we want you to be passionate and angry but if you're if you yell, we're going to say you sound super shrill and bitchy. So, like, mm-hmm. where is that middle ground where you can be authentically passionate but definitely not yelling because that's going to be aggressive and weird? So that is it's – a, it's a huge bind. And my view of it is that – and the reason I'm sort of optimistic about it is because the more women we have in political dialogue, the more – we expand our view of how women can run. And one of the things you saw in the wake of Clinton's candidacy was this spate, a historic number of women who ran in 2018. Mm -hmm. Many of them won. Many of them ran as openly angry. And it actually 
worked. It worked for the—like, there were doors, there are communicative doors that are opening. It doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean that, you know, it's not going to— we still see Elizabeth Warren. I write in the book about how people have said about Elizabeth Warren. Mika Brzezinski, speaking of Morning Joe, um, was like, there's something shrill in her anger. <laughs> um, so it's not like it's going to go unremarked upon. But I but I think that there is— an, something <laughs> shrill in her anger. That's so I, funny. I, oh, my God. I want to say, I don't have it in front of me, but I think that quote also included the word, and I'm not making this up, Unhinged. I'm not positive, yeah, but I'm pretty sure. Yeah. Um, so mostly we're expanding our view. And this is what happens when you have candidates who are not all straight white men, as they have been mm-hmm. historically up until Barack Obama, you know, and that's one exception, guys, right? We are expanding our the way we can see and hear politicians and understand them to be leaders. And part of that is a communicative expansion. So I, I yeah. am optimistic that we are going to be able to hear angry women differently, which doesn't mean that you won't have a spate of ridiculous people calling them shrill and mean and threatening. You see it all the time happening around black women. Um, Maxine Waters, the way she is regularly talked about is crazy. She has been one of the most remarkable expressors of of political fury in the Trump era and during the Trump administration, and she is regularly denigrated as crazy or alternatively turned into sort of a comical meme, right, Mm -hmm. Um, which is another way that especially black women's anger gets minimized or written off as sort of turned into caricature. I think Ocasio-Cortez has the ability to— change the game in many ways. You know, a lot of her opponents focus on, you know, her policy prescriptions. I, You know, I think she'll get better at, you know, as every politician does with policy. She's, you know, freshman congressperson. If you look at people's, when they first get into Congress, you know, you can, you can tear apart anybody's thing. But her political talent is formidable. It's formidable. She's, she's an extraordinary she, political talent. And she's just getting better and better. I just watched with, with my daughter, we watched... Um, that documentary about her that god they were so prescient to follow the people I think uh, uh, they were they were prescient and it, they were really good filmmakers how old is your daughter yes. uh she she'll be 21 in July yeah. okay and uh we were watching it and you know now we know the outcome and it was interesting to see how i think she was even concerned about this issue she didn't express it in quite that way but I, I remember when she had the debate against, was it Crowley? Is that his name? Am I saying yep. right? Mm-hmm. Who she ran against? And, you know, no one gave her a chance. And she was very concerned about it. She thought she didn't know if she was being set up or if this was a mistake. And you could see her at the beginnings of understanding her what her power is, yeah. you know, but she was a little bit unsure of it at the same time. But her power actually is in her stridentness and Absolutely. in her— and in that, but that's where she gets her political strength. And to see her at the beginnings of it was fascinating. And now, like when you see her on that on the floor and she's doing it, it's like, oh my god! And she and you know, like I told my daughter, I said, Lauren, ten years from now, forget about it. You know, she, I mean, the the way that this person's going. Like if you saw Bill Clinton in 1980, you would have said, oh my god, this guy's raw right now, mm-hmm. but. This is some political talent here, you know. She is extraordinary. And I thought so much about I watched that with my daughter, who's actually she's just eight, so it's a different perspective. Oh, and her, yeah. her eyes are yeah. like super round. She loves this yeah. movie. And she's It's at, a great documentary. It's so good. It's and really good. Yeah. She's at my eight year old is asked to watch it again and again. But what um, is the name of it so we can give it props? Knock down the house. Knock down the house, yeah. Knock um, down the house, guys. See it. It's on Netflix. 
but I thought so much about anger, obviously watching it, because I think all the time about anger. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, uh, uh <laughs> no, Rebecca, no. <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> but yes, that you're exactly right that it's that scene with Crowley, or, or not Crowley, yeah. where he's not there. And, yeah, oh, that was brilliant. And that she just gets scene, up yeah. and it's, and yeah. there's a surrogate and she's respectful to the surrogate. And then she just lets loose yes. and is like, this is, you know, this community is not being represented. And you can, you're exactly right. right. You can see the beginning of like, wait a minute, what yep. if I have expressive capability? And you can see it also. Yep. It's not just Ocasio Cortez, Paula Jean Swearingen, who is the West Virginia candidate mm-hmm. who's in that. And sh- she did not win her primary, though yeah. she is running again. Um, in a, she mm-hmm. was, she was primarying Joe Manchin in 18 and she's now running in a Democrat. Democratic primary yeah, um, in 2020, yeah. but she says in her speech to Netroots Nation, "I'm mad as hell." I mean, she is. She's like, "I'm I'm a coal right. miner's daughter, and I'm mad as hell." It's an incredible scene, but I and righteous anger. She oh, had righteous and anger. Corey yeah. Bush in yeah. in Missouri. All the candidates they follow are remarkable. Yeah. But this is what I'm saying about the expanding. This is this is in fact how we change things because, and mm-hmm. it it happens seemingly slowly and impossibly slowly, and then suddenly things begin to multiply. So you have Shirley Chisholm, right. who always said that she hoped. You know, Shirley Chisholm after she ran for president in 1972, writes about that race. You know, I always hope that my candidacy will make it possible for somebody who is not a wealthy white man to run for president. So in she, you know, decades before, is seeing her role as making imaginative space for candidates like Barack Obama, Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. right? And they are onlys, right? They exist. So many of those those people, their entire political careers were singular, right? It's just this one stand person who's not like the others. And that's, you know, it's it's Maxine Waters. It's Barbara Lee, the congresswoman from California, who I write about at length and who has been a tremendous progressive leader for decades and got into politics because of Shirley Chisholm. Yeah. Now you have a generation yeah. of women who have grown up in a world where Female leadership was more of a norm in part because of because of Hillary Clinton and Maxine Waters and Nancy Pelosi and Ann Richards and and Barbara Jordan, right? right. And they can go further and they're expanding upon mm-hmm. the the ways in which they can speak and be heard and be represented and exert their power and they're changing it dramatically from how it used to be. Yeah. So we're in the middle of this process yeah. and I don't think we should base our assumptions about what is possible in the future based on only what has been impossible in our past. I think that's awesome. What a great way to sum that up. Rebecca Traster, Good and Mad, The Revolutionary Power of Women's Anger. This is really a fascinating read, you guys. There's so much great historical things in the book, but there's also the way that you tie the, the issues together and just the way of for us as a culture to remind ourselves of the hiding out that women constantly have to do. And anger is just one of those ways that women have to hide how they're actually mm-hmm. feeling for them to be accepted. It's just ridiculous, you know. But um, hopefully we're at that cultural turning point, Rebecca, maybe. Well, him. it's a long process. It's, it's you know. We'll see. <laughs> and a cultural turning point Let's at the moment in yeah. which everything is getting even worse and worse and worse. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Which cultural right. turning point is it yeah. exactly? Yeah, you never know. That's why we all need to have righteous anger for these things. Rebecca, thank, thank you, you so much. Thank you so much, Larry. It was really fun. Oh, the pleasure is all mine. 